As we get into God's Word this morning, it's really important that you know what book we're in. So does anyone know what book we're in? Yeah, the book of Acts, that's right. And the question this morning, that's the title of this sermon, is what does God want me to do? All right? What does God want me to do? We're in Acts chapter 21, in the first 14 verses there, we'll look at together. But this is a really important message, because all of us come to a place in our lives where it's not quite clear, or it's clear, and we're not quite sure we want to follow through with that clarity, right? We don't want to necessarily stay on that track. It looks a little bit like precarious. So in our story today, from the book of Acts, we have Paul, again, because of the end of the, from the middle of Acts all the way to the end is, is this, these journeys with Paul. So we are on one of Paul's journeys. And he comes to a place where he has to understand and discern. Discerning is another word for understand what God's will is for him moving forward. Have you ever been in a situation like that? For me, since today is my 25th wedding, I'm 25th, 35th wedding anniversary. <laughs> 35th wedding anniversary. For me, asking my lovely wife to marry me was one of those places. I wanted to know that that was God's will for me and for her and for our lives together. And so I, I, I needed that assurance, right? Big decisions like that often make us pause and say, Ooh, how do I know what God wants me to do? Is this just me? Is this just somebody else's pressure on me? Is it, look, or is this what God is laying out before me? So big decisions. Some, some of you, it might be what college you're going to go to next year. Some of you, it might be, should we start a family now? Is this the time when we should have our first child? You know, or is it time for us to move and retire? Like, there's all kinds of big decisions. So it's not always like, what should I have for breakfast? Oh, what kind of jam should I put on my toast? You know, it's not necessarily at that level. We're talking about big stuff, the bigger stuff, right? And so I want us to look at this passage in God's word and receive from God the direction that he can give us and the equipping that he can give us. Because you're going to learn a skill today. By the time we're done here, you're going to learn a particular skill that you can then take and use in your life. Isn't that good? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Equip us with it today. Help it to be a, a tool that we can use so that we can stay in your will, that we can continue to grow and understand life and the life that you have laid out for us here on earth. Thank you for your spirit and your word. Use them now to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of things that we just established here as a, as a baseline is that we already know that the Bible teaches clearly that God speaks to individuals. He does it all throughout the Bible. In fact, the Bible wouldn't exist unless he spoke to individuals. He spoke to the, the, the people who were used by God to even write the Bible to us. But even in the narratives and the stories throughout the history of, of biblical times, we have him speaking to people. And we know that that speaking comes from an intimate love relationship, a, a close relationship with God. 
He doesn't necessarily speak to like people that are far from him and want nothing to do with him. He speaks to those who seek him. He says, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. But if you're not seeking God, if you're out seeking after all kinds of things in the world, people say, well, there is no God. Well, have you looked for him? Have you sought him? Have you, have you tried to find him? Or are you just out there living a crazy life and you just haven't bumped into him, right? So we, we see him. We begin to b- develop a relationship with him through Christ and through, through the Spirit's work in our lives. And we begin to recognize his voice. You know when God is speaking to you as you grow in Christ. Maybe when you're a baby Christian, you don't. You recognize the, the invitation to salvation, and you know that you need that in your life. So, so that is the first work, the first invitation that God gives to you. But he gives you an invitation every day. Because like the passage that we read in John, he wants us to be fruitful in life, to, to produce fruit by abiding in him, by staying connected with him, by listening for his voice and his direction. God can do whatever he chooses to do. Scripture teaches that. He is sovereign. He's not, not someone we boss around. He's got a plan. He's got something that he is already accomplishing through all of history. And with Scripture as our guide, we can also know God's voice. We can hear it. We can recognize it. And we are meant to follow it. To, to be obedient. We don't just hear from God and say, oh, okay, great, thanks, and go do our own thing. We're to hear from God and follow after his plans for us, his design for us, as we recognize his voice. One of the best books that I ever read, and it's years and years and years ago when I was a young man, I think I was newly married at the time, um, I read this book called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby and Claude King. And in Experiencing God, they point out that Ultimately, we all know God's will. It is God's will that the people on earth would know him. That's God's will. So people say, what's God's will and all of this or whatever? He wants people to know him. He sent his son so that we could know him. He sent the spirit to the church so that we could know him and make him known. God's ultimate purpose is to be known. He doesn't want to be a God in the distance Far away from people, he wants to be right there in the midst of his people. He even shows it when he, when he developed Israel into a nation. He put himself in the very middle of the camp, in the tent of tabernacle. He wants to be dwelling with his people. And we know that in the end, if we look forward to the end of time as what we have as the end of time, he will once again dwell with his people, in the midst of his people. So that's his desire is to draw us to himself. He wants us to experience him personally. Not as some religion, not as some you know, rituals that we go through, go through, but some kind of personal relationship where we recognize him working in our lives and we desire for him to draw us into a deeper relationship with him. In this book, Experiencing God, the authors, they point out that God speaks in several ways as we look at Scripture. He speaks through Scripture, first and foremost, because that's what we have. But he didn't, there wasn't always books, right? The, the printing press came along much later in history than, than when Jesus walked the earth, right? So there were scrolls, yes, 
but they were rare and they were kept special and they were kind of away from the people. So God spoke to people through a burning bush. God spoke to people through sending a messenger, an angel. God spoke to his people, reached out to his people as they sought him in prayer. Now we have the Bible, we have prayer, we have the circumstances of our life. Sometimes the circumstances of our life are used by God to speak and direct us. Not always, and we're going to learn about that today in this passage, but sometimes. And he also uses the church, the body of believers that you are a part of, to discern together what God's will is. That's why we often say, would you pray for me about this? Would you, when you come to prayer meeting, would you pray for me about this? I'm not sure about that. I need direction. I need knowledge here. I need some wisdom over here. And so we pray for one another. We try to discern together what God is doing. Following God always requires faith. He does not give us a book about our very own lives. And you can look it up today, June 11th. Get up in the morning, put on a shirt, eat some breakfast. He he doesn't do that for us. We, we, We have to understand that God has given us his general will, and then he will work out in our personal relationship with him our daily issues. But as we walk with him, it requires faith. I don't have an instruction book for my life other than the Bible. But I'm not in the Bible. Neither are you. These people lived a long time ago, right? So we have to begin to discern and understand how God works in our lives today in a way that is personal, and he invites us into that. But it does cause us sometimes to have what's called, in this book, Experiencing God, they called it a crisis of belief, a point where you know what God wants you to do, but you look at your life and you say, but that doesn't make sense to me, right? So God has revealed his will, but all of a sudden, you're like, ah, yeah, that, that's difficult. That's hard. I'm not sure I can carry that out. I'm not sure I can do that. I thought my life was going to be about this, and now God's leading me in this direction. That's the crisis of belief, right? And so in that, we look at Paul in our passage today to learn how to discern and how Paul discerned what God's direction was. So I'm just going to read the first 14 verses here. Please follow along. It's on page 988 in the the Pew Bible. In Acts chapter 21. It starts with, after we tore ourselves away from them, so the end of the chapter before, they were leaving and, and, and leaving a group of people and they were crying and they were embracing Paul and they were grieving because they, they felt they'd never see him again because he was leaving on this trip. As he got on the ship, they were, they were sad and they prayed together and they, they sort of made this sad separation take place. So after we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for cause. And the next day to Rhodes, and there from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and we set sail. So he's on this journey. He's moving, 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 moving. How does he know where to go, right? That's what we're going to find out. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria and arrived in Tyra. 
since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out some disciples. So they went looking for disciples there and stayed there with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, and that's a key phrase right there at the end of middle of uh, verse 4. Through the Spirit, those disciples, they, told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then, when our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey to Jerusalem, I put in quotes, right? It's not there, but that's where they're going. While all of them, with their wives and their children, accompanied, accompanied us out of the city, after kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another, and we boarded the ship, and they returned home. So every time Paul leaves a group of believers, they're grieving. They're, don't go, stay here, stay with us. Starting in verse 7. When we completed our voyage from Tyra, we reached... But tell me, yes, I love these words, right? Uh, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Syria, Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied it, tied his own hands and feet together with it. Strange, right? And said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. So remember the phrase, through the Spirit, in verse 4? Now we have in verse 11, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, being Paul, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul replied, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said, no more except the Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done. That's part of that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, right? May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Part of the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. when He struggled so before the crucifixion. God, if this cup could pass from me, but if not, not my will, but yours be done. In decision making, this is key. Those who really want to follow God, really want to see God use them and, and work through their lives in the way that God intended, their heart attitude has to be, Lord, may your will be done. So as we read this passage here in, in Acts chapter 21, we discover that there's a problem. What is the problem? Well, in verse 4, the disciples are urging Paul quote-unquote, through the Spirit. So that's the Holy Spirit. They're urging him not to go to Jerusalem. 
All that we know is that somehow the Holy Spirit made known to them probably as they prayed and as they worshiped together, as they, as they thanked God for Paul and they prayed for his journey, they got this message, basically, of what Paul already knew. However, they interpreted that message very differently. They were basically saying, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're outside of God's will because something bad is going to happen to you there. But in Acts chapter, I mean, in, in, in verse 11, the Holy Spirit's not saying don't go. That was their interpretation of what they were sensing God saying to them. They interpreted it as don't go, Paul. But that's never said in any of these passages. God obviously doesn't want anything bad to happen to Paul was their assumption, Right? Oh, something bad's going to happen, so don't go there. Now, again, let's go back to Christ since he's the center of our faith. If Christ knew that the cross was before him and said, oh, that seems bad, hurtful, painful, awful, and then said, God's will must not be for me, We'd be right back in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan tempted Jesus to skip the cross, right? The temptation of Jesus there in Matthew 4 when he's driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit. And Satan comes and says, oh, if you just do this, you know, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. If you'll just bow down and worship me. If you'll just... So these alternative plans to the cross. So we know and Paul knows that just because it looks bad, looks painful, looks difficult, that is not a testing place for, oh, that's not God's will. That would be bad. That would be hard. So don't do it. That's us. That's our flesh that speaks out that way. None of us want to suffer. None of us want to go through difficulty. So we don't volunteer for it. But when God's path is leading us through a difficult time, we can't abandon ship. So these, these brothers here, these brothers and sisters, were discerning that there were difficult times ahead for him if he went to Jerusalem. They probably thought that Paul was actually directly disobeying the Holy Spirit if he did go. But it appears that Paul is completely unconvinced because he says in verse 5, when our time, to come, when our time had come to end, to an end there in that, in that place of where he was visiting, we left to continue our, our journey. Like I said, to Jerusalem. That's where he was headed. So what are we to think now, since the disciples in Tyra, through the Spirit, told Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Is the Holy Spirit somehow conflicting itself, himself? Is there, is there two messages coming from God? Well, no, we know that's not possible because we serve one God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a mysterious way, but he's one God, so he has one will. So it's not like the Holy Spirit is saying one thing, and God's sending another message to say something else, and God is somehow confused. That's not possible. God's not the author of confusion. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are completely united because they are the same. If I were Paul, which I know I play this game all the time, and whether it's good or bad, I do it. I try to think in, in that, like, wow, that must have been tough. Because now the brothers and sisters who he's praying with and who he's in fellowship with are telling him the opposite of what he knows God has told him to do. 
What am I going to do? What must be happening here is that the Holy Spirit revealed to these disciples, yes, the danger that laid ahead for Paul in Jerusalem. But the disciples then interpreted what was revealed in that information as, Paul, don't go. Right? They did an interpretation of what the Spirit had revealed. Paul had already received his orders directly from the Holy Spirit and also had been given a clear picture of what it would mean. We'll look at that passage in a minute. But he knew chains and affliction were waiting for him. He says it himself. So he didn't argue or spend time discussing this with them. Not that we can tell from this passage. He simply followed what he had personally been told to do. He remained obedient. In Acts, we have seen Paul do this time and time again. Even to his own detriment, even to his own injury, he remained obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading. So here's the background which kept Paul from changing his plans. You just have to go back to one chapter in Acts chapter 20, verse 22 and 23. It says this, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit. In every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and affliction are waiting for me. In every town, somehow he was receiving a warning. Yes, go to Jerusalem, but chains and affliction are waiting for you there. Ooh, that's a heavy call, isn't it? That's the call on Paul's life. But from the beginning, the very beginning of Paul's conversion, he was told, by Jesus, you will suffer for me. So this wasn't a surprise. Jesus never said, you know, it's always going to be a rose garden for you. He said, you're going to follow me and you'll suffer for me for the glory of God. Just as Jesus suffered for us, for the glory of God. So he says, he uses the word compelled by the Spirit. We first read of this Spirit-given guidance, actually, a little earlier, the chapter before, in Acts 19, verse 21. We read, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So two strong words are in these passages, resolved and compelled. Basically, it means he was determined. Those words can also mean forced or driven to Jerusalem, right? So if, the, if it, it's the Spirit's power that's drawing him in that direction, maybe he, on his own fleshly level, didn't want to go, but he was being pushed along by the Spirit. Nope, you're going, you're going, you're going. I know you don't want to go, but you're going. Because he had to be reminded in every town he visited, you're going. It's going to be difficult, but you're going. It's going to be hard, but you're going, right? This is, this is a great lesson for us because it seems like there's mixed messages within the church, right? He fellowships with these disciples, and they tell him not to go, and yet he knows that the Holy Spirit is telling him to go. Well, I think it's because they were his friends. They loved him. He was the reason they had found Jesus in the first place. And when our friends and our loved ones pray for us, they can get the, base, the same basic information from God about us, but they will interpret it through their own relationship with us, their own desires, or their own fears for us. 
They're afraid that something bad might happen to us because they love us. So it's not a bad thing that these friends were doing. He does come to the end there and say, why are you breaking my heart with all of this? You know, like, because they were pulling on all those emotional strings that he had with them as a friend, as a fellow brother in Christ. We can't imagine that trials and difficulties could ever be the will of God in people's lives. We just can't imagine that. I don't know where we get that. Because it's not actually biblical. I think we get it from places like Disney movies or other things that are fantasies where everything always goes well and no one ever suffers. There's never any sadness. You know, it's this, this fantasy thing. I also think it goes a little deeper than that. We are created in God's image and we were not created for a world like this. We were actually created to be with God forever. And praise God because of Jesus, we will be. But our, our desire, maybe deep in it, within us, is to live in a perfect world with a perfect God and a perfect Savior. And so when things aren't perfect, it does bother our spirit. It does bother us on the inside. So we don't want the success story or the, the everything's easy story or the, oh, everything should always be peaceful we don't, we don't want that to become a false sign that this is God's direction for us. Because success and ease and peace could make you real lazy. If every decision we made was like, well, is it easy? You know, here's a new job opportunity. Well, is the job going to be easy? Can I take naps whenever I feel like it? Can I bring my snuggly blanket to work with me and a pillow and some slippers? You know, I don't want to work too hard. Right? That's what our flesh wants. That's what we prefer to be pampered. But if you read the Bible, that's not what happens. That's not the journey that God has his people on. It is a battle. It is a fight. It is a difficult thing to walk with Jesus. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to him, right? So it's, it's not an easy trip to walk with Jesus. And so if we think that that's the sign of God's direction, then we are mistaken. That's not a biblical way to discern whether we should do something or not do something. In fact, biblical success is doing what the Lord wills and having some sense of inner peace about it, even when our circumstances are stormy, right? So Alvin, I have a definition for biblical success up there, I think. Yeah. It's doing what the Lord wills, having an inner peace, knowing that this is what God's asked me to do. On the inside, I'm, I'm at peace, even if the whole world around me is a storm. And if everyone's telling me, don't do it, don't go, no, that's bad, you should, da, 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 da. God has called me. I know that I should stay, or I know that I should go according to his will, regardless of what's going on. Now, that doesn't mean your own personal emotional state, your own personal thoughts are always going to lead you to that. So God doesn't leave us to discern it all by ourselves. He is, after all, the good shepherd. 
He leads his sheep. He guides his sheep. So how did Paul know what to do? How did he know what to do in this situation? I believe that Paul already knew how to test what was being said to him. How do we evaluate it? He's the one, after all, who writes that prophets and prophecy must be tested. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 through 21, pray constantly, give thanks for everything, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test them all. Test them all. And then hold on to what is good. So there might be some bad advice in the midst of that. These people who loved Paul dearly, they were not trying to make him not walk in God's will. They weren't trying to distract him or deceive him or whatever. They loved him. But there was something about their advice that wasn't good. And for Paul, in his situation, it was Don't go to Jerusalem. Even though God's clearly told you you're going to Jerusalem time after time after time, in every city and town that you visit, you get the same message, whether it's through prayer or whether it's through a brother or sister that shares with you, whether it's some kind of revelation, you know you're supposed to go. So the bad advice was tested out. He tested and said, well, that doesn't line up with what God has said. And so I'm still going to go to Jerusalem. I'm glad they love me. I'm glad that they care whether I'm going to be hurt or not. I'm glad they'll pray for me, but I'm still going. We are to test prophecy. The reason for testing prophecy, for testing all spiritual teaching, is to see if it truly is coming from God or if it's coming from someone's emotions, someone else's thoughts, if it's coming from Satan himself or Satan's servants, right? There's a false prophecy, there's false teaching out there. It doesn't come from God. So we might want to learn how to do what Paul learned to do. Don't you think? Because we want to follow God. We want to be obedient to him. And it isn't just always going to be easy street. Sometimes you work hard and go through difficulty doing God's will. In fact, some people say, I don't know who the some people are, but if you're not having resistance, if you're not being, you know, battled against, you're maybe not in God's will. Because so often in Scripture, the people who are following God are the ones who are getting persecuted and having the difficulty because they're being obedient to God and not to their own emotional desires, not to the culture around them, but actually obedient to God no matter what. So Paul learned how to test prophecy We need to learn how to test prophecy. So how do we do it? These questions, these next five questions, are they're not exclusive. I mean, there's probably other ways and more ways that we should. But these questions will get us started. They're designed to lead us, with God's help, to help to process words or messages that we've received, even the preaching that we receive, the teaching that we receive, and enter into some clarity and some conviction about what God wants us to do. 
So the first one is this. This one's probably, you all know it already, but does what you heard, what you're being taught, what you're being told to do, does it contradict any clear teaching of the scriptures? Now, you've got to know the scriptures to know that, right? If you don't know the scriptures, if you don't read the Bible, and shame on you if you don't read the Bible and you come to this church. Shame on you. Shame, 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 shame. you got to read God's word. It is a light in the darkness. It is the thing that lights our path. It is the way in which our mind is transformed from its old self to its new self in Christ. We need God's word. And so foundationally, if what you're being told does not line up with something that's clear in God's word, don't do it. Don't go there. Don't marry him. I don't know what the decision might be, but if it doesn't line up with God's word. Now, we're going we're gonna to play something that's going to sharpen our, our, our skills here with the sword of the, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. We're going to look up some scriptures. We got time. Oh, we got very little time. Okay, we can do this. Okay, Second Peter, it's uh, on page 1079. I want you to see it. I want you to, to look in your Bible. Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Let's hear what he has to say says this, for it is written, be holy because I am written, because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you have not been redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things, I'm reading the wrong Peter. <laughs> Holy cow. Lord, help me. Lead me. I'm lost. Help find me. Thank you. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths. That matches so much more what we're talking about. When we, ha- when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, instead we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. One of the most powerful things about God's word is that it comes from eyewitnesses. It's not hearsay. It's not something that somebody heard and maybe it happened and it was repeated and changed, like that whole telephone tag game thing. It gets changed along the way. No. This, this book is a holy book because these people were eyewitnesses. Some of them walked and talked with Jesus. They ate with him. They heard him. They saw him do his miracles. And so they wrote it down so that we could know that it is trustworthy. Scripture is the only trustworthy, fully trustworthy prophetic word from God. It doesn't need to be tested because they were eyewitnesses. They saw it happen. So God will not speak something to us today that contradicts what he has told us in Scripture. That's the beauty of God's word. It keeps us on track. Now, we know that Satan used 
little pieces of scripture when talking to Jesus and trying to tempt him in the wilderness, didn't he? He quoted little passages that, that he used. He manipulated them. He, it's called cherry picking. He picked one little phrase out of, the, out of the powerful word of God and used it to try to manipulate. So it's not just a few of the verses that are helpful to us. It's the whole, they call it the full counsel of God. The whole word of God. Because you can manipulate any little phrase, any little piece torn from its context. So studying scripture is so important. And that's why we have so many Bible studies and Bible study tools and other things available. Because we need to be studying it. Because there are people out there twisting it and manipulating it and using it for the wrong purposes. Number two. Second thing. Way to test prophecy. Does your spirit bear witness to it? This is in Romans, so only one book over. Romans chapter 8. Let me make sure I'm in the right chapter. I don't hear your pages flipping. Did you give up hope? Come on, flip the pages. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 18. So then, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, this is the key verse, verse 16, the Spirit himself, the Spirit with a big Capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit. Small s. See that? With our spirit. That we are God's children. And if children, then we're also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is why success and ease and naps are not necessarily a sign of God's blessing all the time, right? Suffering is a part of this, working towards what God's will is and working it out in our lives. The Holy Spirit is in each true believer of Jesus Christ, and he bears witness with our human spirit with the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit. And when the true word of the Lord comes to us, there's an inner agreement. There's something where you just know that you know that this is right, that it's, it's confirmed in God's word and it's confirmed in your spirit. So the third thing after that, God's word, your own spirit, does it glorify Jesus? This is key, key, key. In fact, this is something someone taught me years and years ago when I was a young man trying to figure this all out. And they said, it's really, you're making it too complicated, Tom. You're making it too complicated. I said, well, it seems complicated to figure out what God wants and what he's saying and what he's doing and all that kind of stuff. And they said, it's not. All you got to find out is who's it going to glorify? Is it going to glorify you? In other words, is it about yourself? Your pride? Is it going to glorify Satan or some kind of evil in the world? Is it going to make things worse? Is it going to hurt people? Is it going to destroy relationships? Or is it going to glorify Christ? Who's it going to glorify? That is a great discernment tool. No extra charge for that one. All right. 
So the next thing I want to get to, so we're, gonna, we're not going to look up that passage, but you can, you can jot it down. It's John 16. We're really, we're just talking again about glorifying Christ, making sure that everything is, everything is about him. In fact, the spirit of prophecy, it says in Revelation 19, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. In other words, prophecy reflects Christ. If it starts reflecting something or someone else or fear or or anger or whatever, you're in the wrong camp, right? Prophecy is about Christ and what Christ is doing, what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. So if it becomes about something else, I don't know what that is. Maybe that's fortune telling. Maybe that's some other kind of gift. But it's not prophecy that comes from the Holy Spirit. So moving on to number four. Number four, are there signs in what you're hearing and what you're being told? And we saw it in the passage today, so it can happen among good Christians. Are there signs in what's being said of manipulation or some type of control? This also is key, and we try very hard in our ministry to weed this out. We don't want this growing in our ministries. Is there some type of manipulation or control someone's trying to get you to do what they want you to do? They're kind of couching it in spiritual language, but it's really what they want. And they've learned how to, you know, say it in such a way. Now, they might not even be aware of it. I don't think the believers in our passage in Acts 21 were aware, but they loved Paul so much they couldn't see his life coming to an end. No, 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 don't go. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen, right? So out of love, they even were trying to control him. So this really, we need discernment. It's not always bad people. We always have pictures like this is what a bad person looks like. But that's actually, bad people might look like me, right? Be careful. Everything that I teach should be looked at through the lens of the word of God. Am I trying to manipulate you, control you, make you do what I want you to do? Or do I want God to work his will in your life? you got to ask those questions. If I go off track, that's why we have elders in our church. If I go off track, the elders need to say, Ah, Pastor Tom, get over here. Something's not right about that. You are trying to really control those people. You're trying to really manipulate what's happening. It's Christ's church. He is the head of the church. You're not just because you're the pastor. In fact, you're called to serve the church, Right? So you'll see this, you look in ministries, you'll see it, you'll sense it in your spirit, you'll be able to tell when it's happening, but it's important to recognize. We're in Romans, so I wanted to stay in Romans, but this is in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, almost to the end, verse 17 and 18, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you have learned. The teaching that you have learned is a direct reference to God's gospel, the word of God, what Jesus has done, what his sacrifice means, what salvation is. If someone comes up with another message contrary to that, it's simple. The end of that verse, avoid them. Avoid them. Don't fight with them. Don't try to figure it all out. Sometimes you get so deep in someone's controversy that you're losing track of what God's asked you to do. Because such people do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. 
They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Paul gives, this is Paul again, he's the author of Romans. This is Paul giving us some keen tools to be able to discern. Am I being manipulated? Are they kind of smooth talking me? Are they just flattering me so they can get something from me? There's all kinds of people out there like that. They're not all used car salesmen. Some of them are right in the church. Some of them are right in the pulpit. And we are to be aware. The Holy Spirit is to equip us. So, lastly, number five. And then I have one more point after that. So it's not lastly for the, it's just of the five. Do leaders to whom you are accountable agree? So this is, again, about body life, about being together in the body of Christ, about having people who have discipled you in your life and having people that you are discipling. We all have leaders. We have here in the church, we have elders and ministry leaders and Bible study leaders and a pastor. We have different people in that role. We do consult with one another, like I said. And if you share what you feel God is speaking to you and the person has a reaction, we just talked about that, but their reaction isn't necessarily just because they love you, but there's something else going on. It's important to just note that. It doesn't mean you have to change what you feel like God is doing, but note that because God does use a multiple of counselors, advisors, to help guide us in life, to give us the right kind of counsel, to help us to move in the right direction. This is in Ephesians 4. We'll look this up. It's... Uh, what page is it? 1,038, if you're in this Bible here, verses 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be prophets, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. What did he give them for? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ, until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's God's will for us. And then it says, verse 14, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves, blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted together and knitted together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by a proper working of each individual part, like the body. So if you're part of a body and you're, you're sharing with leaders, you're sharing with others in your Bible study or whatever, and they have something to say about what you're saying, listen. Because your part of the body may not actually be in tune with that. Listen, evaluate it, bring it back to the Word, bring it back to prayer. So in closing... Even though the Spirit's revelation led to man's misinterpretation, it did not deter Paul's determination. So you can take a picture of that one if you want. The, even though the Spirit's revelation 
which is what the Spirit was showing from town to town, from group to group, it led to their misinterpretation. Don't go to Jerusalem. Did not deter Paul's determination. He kept going. Now that's a statement, right? He said at the end of this passage, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a big ask that God is asking, and he's willing to answer it. Where did he get that strong determination? I believe he got that from the spirit of Jesus himself. Because we know in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 13, which I am going to turn to, will be our final scripture for this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. You remember this account because we talk about it often, especially when we talk about poor Peter. Peter, who was always bumbling around as a disciple. But in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But you, who do you say that I am, he asked. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So Peter was on the right track. He saw Christ for who he is. So what happens a little further on in that same chapter? Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. And he told his disciples it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, to be killed and then raised on the third day. Dear Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Oh, no, Lord, he said. This will not happen to you. And we all remember Jesus' response. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about human concerns. That's where discernment comes in, my friends. What is God concerned about? What does God want done on the earth? What does God want to do with your life and through your life? Or what do humans want? All around us, our culture tells us what human wants. Humans want. They want sex and drugs and rock and roll, right? They want power and control and money. They want all this stuff for themselves. Jesus laid down his life so we could have life. He told us himself, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will come together. We'll follow after you. All the other things you worry about that the world worries about. But seek first Jesus. 